Hello and welcome to the ALC Pan-African Radio's Talking Africa program. Talking Africa provides in-depth interviews with experts and other actors in the field of peace and security in Africa. Hello, uh, my name is Desmond Davis. My guest today is Caroline Moser of the University of Manchester in the UK, who developed the uh, Moser Gender Planning Framework, a tool for gender analysis in development planning. Uh, Caroline, uh, can you explain a bit more about this, your uh, gender framework? Yes, we developed it in the 1980s at a time when actually planners had their different sector disciplines, urban planning, land use planning, transport planning, and sort of women were just not really taken seriously. And so I was at the development planning unit at UCL in those days, and we decided that really we had to had to really develop a planning discipline in its own right and that's what gender planning was and it had a very tight and logical coherent framework around gender roles, gender needs, we talked about practical and strategic gender needs and different policy approaches to gender. Very simple framework adopted by a lot of folk, used a lot in training and that's where it all started. But is it focusing on the developing countries or is it globally? No, I've always worked in development, it's funny. Um, I, I was brought up in South Africa and, uh, and then I, I worked a lot in Latin America and I've never worked in the North, though I am obviously um, technically from the North, um, but I've never, this has never been used in, 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 in the North, no. This was very much about gender and development. And how effective has it been over the years? Well, you know, I was just talking to two people outside at the coffee break and they said to me, an Indian lady and an, uh, I don't know where the other one lady came from, and they said to me, we are still using your book and it's the first thing we give to our students when they come in and we make them do exercises on practical strategic gender needs. So it's a fascinating, um, for me, really, really fulfilling that it, that it has passed the test of time and although there's been a lot of criticism about the framework, particularly from feminists, that it's too technical, it's not political enough. It's a very practical framework and it allows people who don't really understand about gender to really start to take it on and integrate it into their, into their, into their operational frameworks. It's very operational. It's not an intellectual academic piece, as it were. Yes, well, indeed, we are here in Nairobi for the Safe and Inclusive Cities uh, Conference. Mm -hmm. And uh, during the, the debate, one lady did say that uh, there's still resistance from women to solve the, the, the changes of the f you, you want to bring about within the framework. That, I mean, the, the resistance is not just from men, but certain women, to women's group, are opposed to uh, whatever the framework wants to achieve. Well, we've moved a long way since that framework. So I think really it's important to update you because that was, that was way back in the 80s and the 90s. And then um, and the, the Beijing Platform for Action in 95 introduced as a global framework, gender mainstreaming. And gender mainstreaming <coughs> consisted both of equality for women and men, equality between them, and also gender empowerment. So that was the period then. And what I came here to talk about, which is taking it even further, is gender transformation. And that's around really how we 
specifically go beyond empowerment and the empowerment of individual women to look at how we change the structural nature of power relations, gender power relations. So undoubtedly there's resistance. These are very political matters. Yes, and um, obviously it's not just men that may resist it. There are lots of vested interests in women as well. So I'm not surprised. <laughs> yes, can you explain a bit more about the gender transformation which you've been talking about? Yeah, I, I decided that um, I was out of working on gender for a while. I was doing work on poverty and inequality. And with the UN Habitat Conference that was recently, UN uh, Habitat Conference number three in, in Quito last year, everybody was talking about transformation. And so I decided it's time to really deconstruct what we mean by gender transformation and to really show the difference between, as I said, empowerment, which is really associated with mainstreaming, it's about how individual women can empower themselves and as such through their own agency can become players in development, as against how do you collectively change structural changes in gender power relations, which emphasize much more collective action and a much more longer term measures that structurally change powers, uh, relations of power in, 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 our, in our cities. But can women empower themselves in developing countries without the help of governments? Uh, yeah, a lot of women empower themselves. They empower themselves through their education, they empower themselves through economic activities, they empower themselves in their relationship, in their social relations. So no, it's not governments that necessarily empower Well, women. I mean creating the uh, enabling environment. Yes, yes, well I think that, I think that you know what, it's not just government, it's also the, the civil society. Yes. And it's women's organizations, women's groups, I mean women's groups in this country, in Kenya for instance, mm. are very important. Uh, uh, some of them quite well for us in, in approach still, you know, caring about women as mothers, women as wives, but then they're also, <coughs> there's a whole spectrum of organizations. And so there are also organizations which work with women around land, housing, these sorts of issues, which given women more power and more control over their lives, which is really what empowerment's about. Yes, you, you did mention the issue about housing in South mm -hmm. Africa, the post-apartheid uh, uh, arrangement whereby women mm -hmm. acquired houses. How, how's that working? Well, in the post-apartheid government, um, if you recall, one of the biggest pledges that Nelson Mandela made was for housing, to give, to give the marginalized black population housing. And to, and to build two million houses. And to build two million houses. And what they did was that they really made sure that 50% of those houses went to women-headed households. Because in that period, as in now, you have a very high percentage of, of households where there is no dominant male head and it's headed by a woman. So they really rolled out a program and women have effectively become 50% of households, I'm told, and the research shows are headed by women. And of course there's been a, a, a knock-on effect because it's not, it's, it's quite, it's challenging. It's structurally changing relations of power in many households with women owning the legal titles to the, the, to the house. So you have quite a lot of, uh, in some contexts, you've had violence amongst partners, brothers, household members, male household members who say, hey, you know, I should have rights to that house. I'm the man. So it's a very, very uh, transformative, I've, I see that as a transformative um, intervention and not achieved easily. Yes, but isn't that one of the relationships, the reasons why uh, you have this uh, sexual violence against women and, and, and girls in South Africa because it's really getting out of hand. How do you see the whole thing 
ending. I, I, don't, I don't think that the sexual violence in South Africa is the consequence of housing policy. Um, I'm not an expert on South Africa, though I was brought up there and I follow what goes on there very closely. Uh, it has, I think, it's the highest rape incident in Africa. Yes. Uh, incredible levels of sexual abuse. Um, and I think there are a number of reasons for that. Frustration of men uh, in the post-apartheid situation where jobs and opportunities that were expected didn't come. Um, the aggression that was associated with that whole period struggle. of struggle, yes. which was a very, very tough struggle, and then gets take out, taken out on women. This is this we know. I mean, we, it, South Africa isn't unique. If you look at Central American countries that have been through conflict, if you look at Belfast, in the mm -hmm. post-conflict context, the levels of, of gender-based violence are often much higher than they were prior to that. Mm -hmm. So it's around all, all sorts of types of frustration and aggression that get taken out on women. Uh, well, in developing countries, I mean, there's a problem with girls' education. How has that transformed since you came up with your framework? Because, I mean, there's always some resistance in, in girls getting further education because they'll end up being married and what have you. So uh, how, how has that changed over the years? You know, I'm, again, I'm not an expert on girls' education, but I think that actually if you look at both national governments and the international system, girls' education was seen and has still is seen as one of the most important and powerful mechanisms for empowerment. And so there has been enormous investment in the education of girls. And I think that we've long ago um, dropped the idea that actually um, educating girls is a waste of time because they're going to go and get married. What, mm. we now, what we now know and what there's evidence and it's out there and everybody knows is that educated women contribute to the development of their country. They contribute because actually they tend to have less kids. They contribute because they are, are better carers and nurturers and they contribute because they contribute economically. So, so girls, girls' education is seen as a plus plus and it has really been rolled out in a lot of countries. Um, I assume in Kenya as well. You know, so in, in Latin America, for instance, uh, in many countries, where I know Latin America much better than Africa, but in Latin America, you have many girls that are better educated than men, than mm. boys now, and that in itself has, has some really tough implications about gender power relations between girls and boys and access to employment and so on. So I think we've, we're over that threshold in some parts of the world. Mm. Obviously, there are other parts of the world where they're still catching up. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you said you did some research here in Nairobi and in Mombasa. What was that? Oh uh, yes, that was amazing. I did I did work on. Um, I've moved I moved out of gender and I was working at the University of Manchester, and we did we did work. I do work on on assets and the accumulation of assets and poverty reduction. And what we were looking at in Mombasa, which was a two two country study, uh, was the asset adaptation in local communities to climate and severe weather. And so we were looking at how local, we worked in, in four communities in Mombasa, uh, using participatory methodology with local researchers, great piece of work. And what we looked at was how do households themselves recognize when weather gets more severe and what are they themselves doing to adapt their, their assets, their housing, their roads, their communities. So that was one study. And then more recently I did a study funded by DFID when I was at Manchester. Uh, in, uh, it was a four-city study, and, and uh, Nairobi was one of the four cities globally, yes. and it was on tipping points of conflict. 
and it was looking at what are the types of, of a, aggression that where conflict tips into violence. We have a lot of conflict in society. You and I can have a big argument now. We could say that's a conflict, yes, but it's course, not going to yes. initially tip into yeah, violence. Into violence yes. So that was the study. That was done again in three communities in, in, Mombasa, in, in Nairobi with local researchers. Um, and it was done for, for, for DFID uh, a few years ago. But in terms of uh, conflict in society, politics has a lot to do with that, actually, and also ethnicity, as we saw here in Kenya during the 2007-2008 election violence. Yeah. So, so how, how does one overcome we had some these... We had some really interesting results where we showed that in these communities that ethnicity was used as an excuse for a lot of forms of other types of violence. So for instance, landowner tenant burning of housing, housing violence, uh, where they said it was ethnic, but it wasn't really ethnic. It was what I call economic violence. Um, again, political violence, which as you know better than me, was around vote get, get gaining and so on, where again the, the ethnicity card was being used. So our study showed possibly a little counterintuitively that, that actually ethnicity was not the driving force, but it was, it's a very clever mechanism to use in a context where there obviously are different yes, ethnic populations. Well, how can cities, cities in Africa be more inclusive? I mean, this, this is one of the uh, projects of the uh, Safe and Inclusive City Conference. I mean, uh, how do you go about making them inclusive? Because I don't think there's inclusivity in any city in the world, really. The, well, I guess it depends what you mean by inclusive. I um, mean, mm. I think it's a sort of catch term, yeah. catchy word, but what does it really mean? I mean, does it mean you're inclusive because you actually are accessible? We had Jan Kloss this morning talking to us about the road systems yes. in, in Nairobi and how they are so complex and it makes it really difficult to move around. So that makes people very isolated, very marginalized, mm -hmm. very separate. That's yeah. one form. Inclusivity, of course, is a lot of it's about employment. We had a good, some good questions about the informal economy and people working in the informal economy. What always strikes me when I come to Nairobi, and I haven't been here for a little while, is that you have no pavements and everybody has to walk these long distances to get to work because they, they can't afford the transport systems. These are all mechanisms, and by the way, some of them are physical planning, and that's why I think what's so really good about the study is that it's not focused just on, you know, sort of social issues. It's really hard physical issues that can make spaces and places more joined up in these sorts of ways. Yeah, but rapid urbanization in Africa and developing countries, I mean, is really leading to extreme violence because people are fighting for few jobs and not enough housing and all this sort of thing. Shouldn't governments try and, and widen the development process rather than just concentrating on cities and urban areas? Well, it's a big debate, that one, because we know that cities are really the generators of economic wealth in countries. And we also know that the rural areas are becoming very mechanized. And therefore, although they are generating income, there's not a lot, they're not generating employment. And in this case, as, as in many African cities, you have these very big migrant populations 
that are the consequence of the, of the conflicts in countries that are around you. So that it's not, it's not a, there is no easy solution. And I do agree with you. And that's when there can also be conflicts where you get these competitions between local populations and populations coming in. And by the way, it does, it's not unique to hear, look what's going on in, in the UK at the yes, moment course, yes. around migration and yes, how political yes. that issue has yes. become. And that issue is said to be around people and their jobs. I'm not sure it is because actually an awful lot of Brits now, now won't do the jobs that the other guys will do. We'll do so, yes, exactly. But it's, that's the sort of political mm -hmm. debate you're talking about, yes. Yes, but um, uh, at least in, in, in developed countries, the government ensure that there's capacity eventually building new houses and homes and what have you. Take, for example, in Freetown, before the war, the population was only 250,000. Yeah. Now it's over 1 million and nothing yeah. has been done to accommodate yeah. the extra po population. So how should governments in Africa go about this? Again, I think it's quite contextually specific, but there are a lot of different types of interventions. One is getting away from urban sprawl and increasing density, changing, ch changing planning legislation so that you can build up rather than always out. These cities have very yes. low densities. Yes. You know, I had a student who recently finished a PhD on Juba. Sadly, of course, Juba is now in conflict again, South Sudan, but yes. in South Sudan. But, but that, that is a city that had such a low density and they just moved out and out and out. Now, what's happened, that originally was what happened in Latin American cities, but we're now in the second, third, fourth generation, and you've got two, three, four blocks moving upwards. So densification is one way of, of, of in, and, and, you, and changing the, the planning leg legislation is another way of doing it. But again, there are no easy solutions. And you know, as we know, look at Indian cities and how they've changed over time. This is going to be one of the biggest and most pressing problems that we're going to face in the 21st century, I know. You are listening to Talking Africa on the ALC Pan-African Radio. Stay tuned. Uh, welcome back to Talk in Africa. My guest is Caroline Moser of the University of Manchester, who developed the Moser Gender Planning Framework, a tool for gender analysis in development planning. You said that uh, men and women in Africa have different needs and wants. I mean, what are these needs and wants in terms of your the framework? Well, actually, you see, it depends on their roles and their role within the family. Women are really responsible as carers and nurturers, so their roles, their practical needs will relate to water. We've heard a lot in this talk here today in this, in this event about how it's women who tend to go out and get water. Men turn, tend to want to get work. It's not that women don't need work at all, but they sometimes have the same needs, but they sometimes are very different needs. And they're, and they're contextually specific, right? But women are the ones that are the, not only are the carers, the, they, they are the mothers, and at the same time, they also have economic responsibilities. So one of the really the big areas of difference, which is that the caring role is not really often taken up by men. And in many areas, men are involved in political organization, but women are involved in community negotiation. So again, you have a gender differentiation in terms of roles within the community. Um, and what they're doing within communities. So, so how should women be compensated for the, uh, the roles they're playing in, in this society? Oh, I don't think they should be compensated. I think that women, women uh, through their empowerment and through their own, their own mobilization and challenging, are becoming real players in development processes. 
they, they now say that actually in, in conflict contexts it's the women who are the ones that are much better negotiating no, local local peace yes, that's in what communities. Do you see what I mean? In Liberia and Syria, yeah, yes, the yeah. women yeah. took the so, role. So yes. it's like, it, it, of course it is recognition of women and what they do and their roles. And, it, and I mean, we're back with this sort of rather uh, feminist term of patriarchy, which yes. is about the power relations that mm -hmm. men have older women mm -hmm. over women yes. and how we change those. Mm -hmm. And they can be changed in a number of ways, but they can also be very, very resistant to change, as I'm sure you know. Yes, and that, of course, is, is not helpful for, for women. And what about pay inequality? How, how do we resolve that problem? Because it, it's global anyway, it's not just in developing well, countries. Well, it's, it's, you get a lot, of, a lot greater parity in some contexts than others now. Mm -hmm. It's moving towards parity. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, again, it's, it's a lot of it is through protest, a lot of it is through lobbying, through getting legislation through. We've had a big struggle in the UK to yes. get parity in, yes, in, 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 uh, in pay. Yes, yes. I can tell you, I was a university professor and I happen to know that uh, the guys who were university professors were paid more than mm. me, yes. right? So this parity issue is not just sort of for informal sector workers, yeah, it goes right across the board, yes. yes. And so now you see what they have in England is there's a transparent system that you can look up to see what the lecture, what the, in the, in the, on the inter I think the internet has been amazing yes. in, in exposing and making much more transparent this lack of, of, transpa of, of parity in a lot of these areas. Yeah, but at times uh, some people misuse the internet, like the, uh, the case of Gina Miller, who uh, got the British government, took the British government to court over Brexit. Yes. And some of the things were say, the people were saying was just because she was a woman, yeah, really. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. how, how do you... I think it's abusive. Yes. It and I think it's appalling. And I don't think that Britain is in any way uh, 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 you know, uh, resolve the issue of, of, of male dominance and yes, patriarchy, yes, and I yes. think it's worse in some of the political parties than others. So that, um, yeah, I think it was really, really appalling. Yes, and the country. issue also of reverse porn, if you follow with your girlfriend, you plaster all the pictures over the oh, internet. So yeah. these things, I mean, how, how do we control these things now? Because it's, it's really getting out of hand in some no, aspects. No, I think that one of the good things that has happened is that we have generations of younger men who have very different attitudes. Mm. I mean, I have two sons, and I have five grandchildren now, and my son's attitudes towards their wives and to the roles they play mm. inside their homes mm. and to the parity between them in their, in their relationships, mm. along with those of their friends, are very different. Now, I'm not saying that's across the board with everybody, yes, mm -hmm. but I mean, actually, in a lot of these changings, changes in, 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 in patriarchal relations, it's women, and you asked me this question earlier, mm. women's resistance. Mm. It's women who are responsible mm. for actually recognizing with their sons, actually, how they themselves need to sort of address this issue. And, be, and so it's really how you socialize your sons a yes, lot of, of the time. Mm -hmm. So, so, so how, how do you see this conference progressing eventually over, over the years, I mean, uh, to, to, to resolve the problem of violence a, in society, in cities and urban areas? I think uh, this conference has been a very unusual one because the research project, this research program, mm -hmm. the, the IDRC, DFID funded research program, has been pretty unique in a number of ways. It's, it's a global program, it's comparative, uh, it's given generous resources, relatively speaking, so that, so that the academics involved in it have been really able to do very profound work. 
Um, I don't think in itself it changes things, but I think people, it's, it's a whole generation of ideas, of picking up responses, of thinking, okay, what are the policy messages I can now take back? I think it's been great that they have policymakers at this event as well. They're going to be more in tomorrow. There is always a challenge of academic researchers getting their research translated into sufficiently um, simplistic terms for policymakers to uh, hear and then for them to think about taking on. Well, indeed, information is important because that's what a few people have said at the conference. Mm -hmm. How do you then get this message to the wider public? Well, I think it's people like you on your radio and these sorts of things that get it out wider, you know. I mean, academics live in quite polarised worlds where they publish articles and things like that. Um, and talk to themselves. And talk to themselves quite a lot. Uh, I think that for those of us who try and straddle these different worlds, because I work both in, in academia but also in policy, one is looking always for opportunities to get these messages out. I thought there was a very good point made today about actually the next generation of, of I was the person who said there should be a knowledge transfer. Yes. This knowledge should be transferred to the next generation of researchers because these, these people are skilled as researchers. But secondly, uh, through, the, through the university systems, training up students in this sort of ways. But I think we have to be realistic. You know, we're not going to change the world in that way. But I think there's enormous wealth of knowledge. And I think it, what it does is it really assists in putting the whole issue of security firmly on the development map as a, as a really big development constraint. And, you know, I worked in the World Bank in the 1990s, mm -hmm. and I did the first study that the bank had ever done on violence in Jamaica. And, yes. they, and they said it wasn't a development problem. It was an individual behavioural issue. Look where we are now. So right. I, I feel I was... I mean, I know you think I was a pioneer on gender, but actually I was a real pioneer on violence. Yeah, that, and I said, you know, I did the study in Jamaica, and we showed that the way violence eroded social capital, it eroded collective community action, the Jamaicans said, wow, you know, this is really important. So it took a long time, and now the World Bank talks about violence as a problem. Of course, they prefer conflict. It's a sort of, it's a, it's a more dynamic, uh, it's a more dramatic mm -hmm. issue to work on. Yeah, I mean, that's the point in terms of security. I mean, in the West, it's completely different from uh, developing countries, because in the West now it's to do with the terrorism mm. and that sort of thing. Mm. I mean, are we ex going to expect that in uh, developing countries too, that sort of bombings and... Uh, well, I hope not, but yeah. I mean, your guess is as good as mine, but what I do hope, and what I have written about and said, is that we must be very careful that these sensational forms of terrorism don't erode yes, you mentioned this that, yes. incredibly important work yes. on, the norm, on normal, the normalisation of daily violence, which is what this whole conference mm. has been about. I think that's very important. Caroline Moser, University of Manchester, who developed the Moser Gender Planning Framework, a tool for gender analysis and development planning. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Talking Africa and ALC Pan-African Radio. For these and other programs, please visit our website at alcpanafricanradio.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at African Leadership Center. For feedback on this and other programs, please send an email to info at africanradio.com. Dot com.